Working Cows Podcast, episode 291. This episode is brought to you by the Wine Glass Ranch. This episode is also brought to you by Ranch Right LLC. Welcome to the podcast that gives producers a platform to discuss and share paradigm-challenging practices. Practices that have increased the effectiveness of their operation and the joy that their families have received from this lifestyle. Howdy, everybody. It's Clay Connery, host of the Working Cows podcast, recorded exclusively in the C90 Ocean Minerals studios. And this episode is brought to you by Ranch Right LLC. Quick question. Do you suck at bookkeeping? Well, Ranch Right LLC sucks less than you do. Do you feel like your financials are far from perfect? They've been there. Does the idea of spending those first warm spring days tied to your computer make your head want to explode? They get it, and they don't blame you. Why spend time stuck inside doing something you are terrible at when there's a team of financial experts who actually enjoy this type of stuff? Ranch Ride LLC works for you to create actionable financials that lead to profitable businesses and generational wealth. If you're ready to know your numbers and work with a team that sucks far less than you do, then visit ranchrightllc.com slash winning and get back outside to things you enjoy. Very excited to be joined today by Larry Trannel. Larry is with the Extension Service in Iowa at Iowa State University, and he is uh, one who focuses on the uh, dairy side of things, but dairy side of things, but also Dr. Trannel spends about half of his time uh, dealing with farm stress and and dealing with the complexity of uh, personal interpersonal relationships on farms and ranches. And so a friend of the show, Aaron Helmick, reached out and suggested Larry as a guest. And so we decided to sit down and talk to Larry about uh, some of these things today, about handling farm stress and handling all the pressures that we we face as agriculturalists, as farmers and ranchers. And so very excited to talk to uh, Dr. Trennell about those things today. Dr. Trennell, thanks for joining me today on the Working Cows podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks, Clay. Uh, very, very excited for this conversation. Uh, looking at kind of some of the ways that we handle stress on uh, on the ranch, and uh, this is going to release in in April, and so that's really on on ranches <laughs> and and on farms as well. Uh, those tend to be some pretty stressful months. Um, you know, on ranches we get calving and branding and getting things out to summer pasture and and then on farms we're you know planting and and getting some of those things done as well so uh kind of just talk to me about some of the ways that you have uh looked at handling uh these different stresses and and kind of some of the different pressures that this industry will bring to people uh throughout the different cycles of the year well, Clay, you're definitely right that springtime tends to bring a lot of stresses and the fall harvest is one of the big times as well for a lot of farm stresses. So I think it's very timely. Uh, when you take a look at farm stress, they're kind of unique compared to a lot of other people. Uh, but the thing is about, you know, farmers actually tend to be more resilient to a lot of stresses and it's actually, uh, they tend to actually have seem to have more reward in their uh, daily labors than a lot of other people. But yet those stresses, whether it be due to the weather, be due to finances can actually sometimes, you know, get them to the point where they get into 
distress. And so one of the things I always like to work with is that stress is actually a good thing in our lives because it causes us to move from point A to point B. It actually encourages uh, more performance from us as human beings. But it's to the point when we get beyond our performance level um, and our, our comfort level that it actually gets into that distress where uh, people can get into the, the periods of feeling very tired and exhausted. And actually, if trauma sets in or something like that, can actually cause a lot of people to get into um, a lot of stress as well. So I think the bottom line is that um, stress is actually good for us, but distress is not. So how do we try to keep from going there? And there's a study uh, done over 30,000 people uh, that basically thought that realized that people who um, realized that stress was um, good didn't have much difference in stress levels than people uh, compared to people that really thought stress was bad. And so how we think of stress sometimes might be more important than the stress itself. Sure. Yeah. That approach uh, and just understanding this is a part of the business that I'm in. And, you know, you mentioned that weather and finances can be some of the things and a lot of time our finances are determined by markets on some level. And so if we're going to, if we're going to fret, fret about weather and, and markets, then those tend to be two things that we really have very little control over. And so kind of talk to me about some of the strategies as far as dealing with, with those two things and, and just recognizing what you do and don't have control over. Yes, I think you, you mentioned a lot of really important points there because just the, the weather and the prices themselves is what I call the farm happiness index. And so that's kind of, um, if you, those two things are up, um, it really depends if you got hay down or not, whether you want the sunshine or the rain, or if you're in a drought. But um, if, if uh, the weather is going well for us and um, the markets are going well, we tend to have a very positive attitude. If not, we might tend to have a little bit of a negative negative attitude. But one of the things that happens with us as farmers, it seems like it takes some simple things like that during the day uh, to um, help us develop some kind of a psyche or a, um, a happiness index for the day. And the important part about that, Clay, it just seems like, um, you know, emotions are something that trans transfers very quickly to other people. And so we need to be very careful about our own emotions uh, because when we go back into the house and talk to our spouse or talk to our kids, if it's negative, I bet they're going to pick up on the negativity. If it's positive, I bet they're going to pick up. So it's kind of called the transference of emotions, which is a very important piece that I try to um, to work with um, uh, people in the habit. Um, some of the other things, like when we take a look at just um, the simple stresses as they happen, you know, sometimes, you know, our protective mindset that we've had for millions of years uh, just basically, you know, tells us we got to protect ourselves, protect ourselves and protect ourselves. and actually inhibits a lot of our um, higher reasoning type brain from operating operating, which tends to be our happier, joy, more joyous type um, um, brain functioning. And so when that's happening, um, I think it's always important to realize that when we have negative feelings, they tend to actually pass into the next day, but positive feelings do not. And I use that just as a, a thought process that, you know, if people truly want to be happy, they almost have, they have to work at it because they have to make that decision day in and day out that they want to be happy because otherwise the negativity um, actually tends to, um, you know, take root in a lot of people's um, psyche and brain. Yeah. So what, what are the kind of strategies for when you wake up in the morning, kind of getting started on the right foot? What would, I would, sounds like that's an important part of, 
of yeah, I think that's a, a really a good question. Just um, so when we take a look at just realistic expectations, I think is one thing. So sometimes when we take a look at, you know, day in and day out, what kind of expectations do we have for the day? And if we um, think and I tell those people when I do presentations, you know, if you expect this presentation to be a 10 out of a 10, um, as you sit here and listen to it, I'm, I'm the first person to say I'm not that guy. OK, but it's probably I'm probably not going to be the worst presentation you ever looked at either. So by the time you walk away from my presentation, you're probably going to be pleasantly surprised if you lower your expectation and I'm better than that. OK, so that same thing happens in people's minds is that we have these unrealistic expectations. And I think as we look at generations, uh, this unrealistic expectation might even be getting worse and even worse in the next two generations, um, just because their expectations that life should be fat free and it should be stress free and it should be, you know, money free, guilt free, all these different types of things. They don't think we should have those difficulties in life. But until we realize that life itself is difficult and it's in that process of working through those difficulties that actually give life its meaning. Okay, so those crosses and those difficulties are what help us actually grow as human beings. And so we can kind of put ourselves in the blame game that all these difficulties are happening to me. What am I supposed to do? But if you realize, well, that's what life is supposed to be. And we're part of the solution, not being the victim of the problem. We're actually part of that solution, I think, is an, an important piece in there. So those unrealistic expectations, I think, are big and they weigh big, you know, um, on the profitability of the farm or what this day, whether the weather should be like. Um, this, that, and the other thing. So there's a lot of things just happen in the, in the um, just in the re realistic expect expectations that people tend to have. Yeah, I think that that's important. Something that you kind of touched on there is that these these struggles, these stresses, are common to everybody. Uh, and I think that sometimes what happens is that we get isolated. Like we start to feel like I'm the only one experiencing exactly. X, Y, and Z, and and recognizing that you know we're not. <laughs> What would you? What, what are some tools that can help us recognize that we're not? I, I mean, is it call the neighbor and say, "Hey, this is what's going on. Uh, these are the things I'm dealing with," and and kind of just understand, oh, they're dealing with those too. Or what? Are there other things that we could do? Yes, there's definitely some things about, um, you know, those people that tend to stay closer to each other. Um, they actually exude more oxytocin in their bloodstream. So it's kind of a bonding hormone. And so um, the, the oxytocin, if you're um, maybe a beef farmer, or especially dairy farmers, we know that is a milk let down hormone. But it actually is something that helps bond, um, you know, farmers bond with their, their cows, they bond with their pets, they bond with their spouses. And it's kind of that hormone that actually gets that. And so when we take a look at uh, people that don't have a lot of that, um, exhibited in their, you know, in their body. Um, if you take a look at a person that, for example, that's experiencing loneliness. So loneliness is the equivalent of, um, of smoking about 15 cigarettes a day. So people that are actually clinically defined as lonely will only have a life expectancy of about 57. So we realize that being around people and having support groups and having people to communicate with is actually an extremely important piece of this. Um, so there's an external uh, piece of a way we can try to reduce the stress, but there's also a lot of internal things that are just what I call mindset tactics and just ways we can kind of hack our brain uh, to work with. When in one example, I was um, just kind of mentioning, I do this with a lot of people, is to mention this guy by the name of Three Fingered Brown, who was a guy who actually ended up with um, only three fingers after a corn picker accident. He was a kid back in the 1880s. 
And uh, so um, he could still throw baseballs and then he ended up breaking the other two fingers. And so a couple other fingers as well. And so his hand was really uh, kajabbled. And so the only thing he could do is kind of throw rocks and throw tennis balls and things like that. But he kept at it as a young kid. And so he found himself in a baseball game and uh, actually was part of the 1908 uh, Chicago Cubs World Series. Hmm. So when he when he was playing semi-pro ball, he was playing third base and the pitcher didn't show up. So they brought him in and that's pretty much started his career. And so I use that as an example of how not to let these negative things that happen in us in our lives define us in a negative way. But that is just so true So in so many people's minds about these simple things. And when we take a look at the positive things in our life, it might be 95% of our life might be positive. But why do we focus on this 5% that's negative and then still let that define us in such a serious way when there's so much of our life that's in a positive way? So so I think just um, mindset-wise, we can do a lot to reduce the stress it kind of as a tool. Um, so communication is undoubtedly another big one. Um, I worked with a farmer one time, and I worked with him for a couple of years, and I came back afterwards and I said, well, what was the biggest thing that I helped you work with? And he said, for the simple fact that you taught me how to breathe. <laughs> that I could sit back and I could relax and I could sleep at night a little bit better. And so I've got this call, this thing that I call a uh, Dr. Larry's uh, BS technique, which is breathe and smile. And so you've seen a lot of breathing techniques, but at the bottom of this breathing technique, as you get deeper and deeper, I want people to chuckle and actually kind of laugh because it's hard to have disgust on your face. Um, which is a negative hormone that exhibits a lot of cortisol in our brain. And it's hard to do that, to have that disgust or have a, a scowl on our face when we have a smile on our face. Okay, so to get that smile and that laughter and this breathing technique, it takes about a minute. You can probably do about seven ins and outs. Uh, during that minute's time frame. But I think it's just an important piece that just to, to be able to sit back and relax and breathe is a very important piece of it. So that's kind of more of an internal one. Um, when you take a look at um, uh, people that tend to have a lot of a lot more stress um, and think that stress is bad, they tend to exhibit a lot more um, you know, cortisol in their brain, which is not a positive thing. And their blood vessels tend to constrict like they're under a lot of stress. Um, so when we take a look at people that don't think stress is bad, yeah, they still have the increased heart rate, but the blood vessels actually stay pretty relaxed, just like they're experiencing joy or courage. Okay. So there's just so many mindset tactic type things that I think people can use uh, to work with it, but that breathing is definitely a big piece of it. Yeah, I remember one time I was having a bad day back when I was in Bible school, and I came blasting through a door, and uh, one of the guys that was coming through the same door at the same time just grabbed me by the shoulders, and he said, stop, breathe. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was the start of kind of sit, switching that mindset. But just, I think the pausing at my senior pastor for 12 years, the guy I served under when I was first in ministry, would always say, we need to stop. Get off the merry merry go round and and just pause for a minute and and kind of take in the fact, you know that what that guy said to me when I came through the door was breathe, and then he said, "Now that remember that breath that you just took was a evidence of God's grace in your life that you got another breath and another opportunity to to move forward." So, um, you know, we just have to sometimes need to pause and recognize. Well, there's this other ninety five percent that is good. <laughs> There's this, you know, the, this other part of my life, this majority of my life that is good. There's this 5% that I probably can't control and probably won't come to pass the way I think, the way I'm thinking it will at this moment, uh, that I can't. So we need to pause and shift is kind of what I'm hearing you say. 
Yeah, so I would I would throw that smile on top of that as being as or maybe even more important because um, when we take a look at just facial expressions, um, you know, the smile um, and the laughter will actually exude a lot more uh, serotonin, the happiness hormone in us as well. And so simple things like uh, people standing tall, you know, as you have, so if you're slouched over, you're actually not secreting near as much um, serotonin as you are when you're standing tall and just kind of feeling confident with the world. So yeah, that breathing smile is a combination. I think that's pretty darn important. And then one of the other things I think I take a look at, you know, people um, suffer from a lot of anxiety and depression. And I take this um, actually going back is that there's a lot of people that have lost things in life and maybe they lost a, a parent. They might have lost a child. They might have lost a spouse. Um, they may have lost, um, you know, just more simple things like a pet or a cow, or they just did not attain the job that they thought, or they didn't, um, you know, make it quite as far financially, and they grieve those losses. And so sometimes I think when people have a lot of this undealt grief, grief uh, within their mindset, it's hard for them to uh, get to the next step. And so that's when I think the anxiety and depression and maybe even the thoughts of suicide might actually uh, kind of get in their mind. But there's just one aspect about farm stress that I call just um, the grieving process that people just don't deal with their grief near the way or in the in-depth way that they should. And I'm not saying just get over it. I like to actually help people. And sometimes I'll say, well, I hope you never get over it, but I want to help you in a very healthy way. Try to process through your grief of whatever it is you lost or did not attain in your life because that kind of, you know, is holding you back from getting to the next step. And I think a lot of that goes back to the fact that as agriculturalists, broadly, we tend to be fairly individual people. We're individualists. And so we don't go through the process of actually grieving and dealing with loss. And so then we, we kind of, like you said, never get over it, but we were always dwelling basically in that moment of of actual grief type stress and so i think that the there's because we don't think that it's it's a uh, right or proper to show those emotions or to deal with those emotions or to dwell in that uncomfortable place of grief i guess is that is does that match with your experience um, I would say definitely, and I would probably even take it a little further that sometimes in that grief, you know, things have happened to us, like maybe in our childhood or, you know, a few years back or whatever, and just that whole concept of forgiveness. And then we can, we don't want to just forget it, but there's definitely a lot of, I mean, there's whole books written on just the word forgiveness and people carry these chips on their shoulders or just thinking, well, I should have gotten this or I should have gotten that, thinking the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And a lot of times when we have that mentality, it's kind of the, um, once we get to the other side of the fence, we realize we didn't have life so bad um, uh, where we had it beforehand. Right. Yeah. A, a lot of it sounds sounds like we're talking about kind of that ab abundance type mindset, knowing that, you know, there's more. <laughs> this isn't a yeah. zero sum game. There's enough to go around. I can I can get what I need uh, and other people can get what they need as well. You know, uh, we're not we're not dealing with uh, a finite pie so to speak and that there's there's more than enough to go around and, and recognizing uh that you know uh just because it didn't work out the way that i had anticipated it doesn't mean that you know it's a lost cause so to speak yeah and i think that you know one of the things that you mentioned earlier and you've, you've touched on a couple of times is that stress is more about how you think about it stress is more about how you choose to deal with it and how you feel about it than it is 
actually uh, a physiological issue. Stress is normal. Stress is something that we should recognize. It's going to be a part of our life. It's a tool that we are we we go through to move forward, uh, to you know to to progress, to get to the next level. The, the, all those kinds of things are going to uh, result in stress. And so just recognizing this is normal, but then we have to make some choices about how we feel about it and how we, how we deal with it. Could you talk a little yeah, more I about think, that? Yeah. You bring in a lot of good points there. Just, I mean, the, how we, the thoughts and feelings of how people process different types of things. And so I always tell, you know, especially in the, the grieving process, use that as an example, again, you know, people, you know, we can uh, feel sorry and sympathize with a lot of people. And that's important when, you know, a big stress or a traumatic event actually happens with people, but we really need to move that into the, the skill of empathy, because if you try to um, continually tell people and, and give them sympathy about this, I'm sorry that you did this. I'm sorry. You know, people just tend to feel sorry for themselves versus the empathy, helping them think through that. Yeah, we realize this happened, but um, what are some healthy ways that we can try to help deal with it? And so those feelings and the thoughts, it always kind of brings, you know, positive feelings are actually, per I mean, positive thoughts are, um, when, we, when we have a lot of, let's just say negative feelings, people, a lot of times they say, well, why, do, why does this person always feel bad about themselves? Well, we can especially go back into like our adolescents and our teenagers. You know, there's a lot of young people that don't feel good about themselves and it's because they don't think good about themselves. So those positive thoughts tend to be very good um, precursors to positive feelings. And without that, it's, it doesn't work quite so well the opposite way. Um, but I think when feelings and choices are an important part and you work in the ministry as much as I do probably. And so when you start taking a look at feelings and choices, I do a lot of um, marriage preparation. So I challenge a lot of my uh, couples, you know, is love a feeling or is it a choice? And early on, of course, you know, that romantic, that Eros type uh, love. Yeah, it's, it's more of a feeling, but it has to grow into a mature love that I need to decide, well, I'm going to love, love my wife, whether I feel like it or not. But the, if I could take that a step further, the same thing happens with happiness, is that how do you choose to love when you even when you don't feel like it but the same thing happens with happiness is happiness a feeling or is it a choice so i tend to say you know choose to be happy whether you feel like it or not because you know when you take a look at farmer personalities and i've been working a lot with uh, farmer personalities since the 1990s and you know yeah we have our feeler type uh, farmers that definitely uh, kind of live more in the world of emotions they tend to probably be um, experience farm stress a little bit more than some of the other personalities um, and some people that are more introverted we know that they probably tend to experience the farm stress when you talk about how do you deal with it and dealing with people there's some people that just don't like to really deal and that's why we sometimes um we might deal with our dairy cows or our beef cows is because, you know, we don't like people quite as much and we'd rather um, work with the cows. So some people have an internal locus of control versus other people that might have more of an external locus of control. And so the external ones are the ones that tend to have a little bit more stress. And we also have a, probably the biggest one I would tend to say is this um, uh, personality trait of neuroticism, which is just basically negative emotion. Um, and one of the things I just like to say about that is just, you know, people have a lot more negative emotion in their in their mindsets than they even think they do. And even when I took the test, even though I'm a very um, um, extroverted type person, I, I was actually surprised by the amount of neuroticism I actually had in my mind. And so when you take a look at just negative emotion, it just it, it inhibits relationships. It just causes people to not be happy, to not make good decisions. And so when we have a scowl or some distrust or just um, neg negative emotions on our face, it's hard for us to make as good as decisions because of some of the hormones that are being um, exhibited at that time.
Sure. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that internal locus versus external locus of control? Yeah. So if we take a look at people that are very proactive, it kind of relates to um, three other personality traits of being proactive versus passive and reactive. So the passive and reactive type people, they tend to play more of the blame game. Somebody else is in control of my life. Somebody else is going to make the decisions or I can't do this because they did that versus somebody that's got a very internal locus of control. And there's quite a bit of research of farmers and locus of control. Uh, but the people that tend to have a very internal locus of control or says, I, I decided to do this, I'm going to make this decision. And they're just very forthright. And like the word says, very proactive in actually trying to deal with their um, problems and issues that come up. And even to the point where um, when you take a look at the word resiliency. So again, I said at the beginning that farmers actually tend to be a pretty resilient bunch. Um, but they've had a lot of um, life experiences that have caused them to have to be that way. Um, and they continue on farming. They just need to be more resilient. But um, it actually kind of plays into that resiliency, whether they have the internal uh, locus of control versus the external. And so what you're talking about is what is controlling your emotion, emotions? Is, the, is what's controlling your thoughts and emotions outside of you or inside of you? That's what you're saying? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the thoughts, again, are probably um, more, um, you know, people that, that that actually work the train of thoughts and have the, the thoughts and kind of in control of their emotions, okay, tend to be more resilient. Okay, sure. So people that, like I said, are the feelers, they might actually be going the other way where they're always living in this world of feelings. And it's a lot easier for us to understand our thoughts than it is to understand our feelings. Mm -hmm. And so is there a process of moving from an external locus of control to in an internal locus of control? Um, you'd have to take uh, quite a bit of training. Your kid's kind of a personality trait that you tend to have one way or another. And so um, when people are under a lot of stress and they have this external locus of control, um, yeah, it's just uh, when I work with it, I've got them all kind of on the left side of my pyramid. So I realize, well, you know, all four or five of these traits are actually in this person. So I really need to be careful of how I'm going to proceed in trying to uh, help them work through it. Um, so when people get under a lot of stress, um, you know, maybe kind of another topic is, um, you know, just their ability to, to think and process and calculate. And so when they're under stress, they actually need those faculties probably more so than they do at other times in their life. But they're actually quite inhibited at that time. And so case in point is Clay goes to the bank and he's under a lot of stress and the banker gives him a list of about 15 or 20 things he needs to work on or things he needs to do to keep this loan. Clay goes back home and his um, wife asks him what they talked about. And Clay says, I don't know. Okay, so I like the George Strait thought process here is just write this down. So take somebody to the bank with you and make sure that we're actually writing these things down because, again, their ability to, to process when you're under a lot of stress is not very good at all. And sometimes even the concept of just remembering. So it's not a, a, a mute point. Sometimes they will share 20 things and they go back home and they can't remember a single thing. Sure. So it's not it's not so much about um, making the transition from one kind of person to another because it's kind of who you are. It's more about recognizing who you are and employing some strategies to help you uh, deal with your personality, basically. Yeah. So in the, in the biggest one, yeah, we can pick out the um, internal, external locus of control to recognize that, that yeah, we, we need to get more control of our life and make our decisions and kind of be more independent with them. So it's not saying we can't change 
but it's definitely not our go-to. And so if neuroticism, that negative emotion, is one of our biggest go-tos, that is one that we can try to work with mindset tactics to try to get them to um, understand, you know, maybe a life a little bit easier. Um, you know, this is more the norm, as you said before. Um, these are some tactics we can use to breathe, relax, have more realistic expectations, understand those things that we've lost in this life, realize that life is difficult, and we can actually use some mindset tactics to try to turn those negative situations because research Research will show that you know families that reinterpret negative situations into more positive uh, meanings are actually more positive and trying to become more resilient in their over life, you know, overcoming crisis and things like that. And they tend to adapt pretty well uh, to it over time. And so we realize those man- mindset tactics can actually work quite well. Let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor today, the Wine Glass Ranch. Are you looking for easy keeping cows? The Wineglass Ranch is selling 80 head of easy-keeping cows on Wednesday, April 12th at Oglala Livestock Auction in Oglala, Nebraska. The Wineglass Easy Keepers come from a genetic base of Angus and Hereford crosses. They are a low frame score, three to four, low milk output, easy fleshing, low input, foraging experts. They graze 365 days a year. The Wineglass Ranch is known for their deep roots and modern practices. The Wineglass Ranch is a team of progressive cattle producers. Their mission is to focus on creating productive and progressive plants and animals. So if you are interested in these easy fleshing, low-input foraging experts that graze 365 days a year, be sure to check out the sale coming up Wednesday, April 12th, at Oglala Livestock Auction in Oglala, Nebraska. For more information, you can get in touch with the Wine Glass Ranch at wineglassranchinc.com. So let's drill down a little bit more on these uh, feelings and choices uh, that, you know, is love a feeling or a choice? Well, we need to choose to love even when we don't feel like it. And then is happiness a feeling or a choice the same thing, basically? And so on that choose to love when we don't feel like it, sometimes I think that uh, that comes down to the issue of do I say what feels good <laughs> to say in that moment of conflict or do I say or do I say nothing at all in that moment of conflict and walk away and say, this is me choosing to love right now, not saying what I really want to say, whether or not what I want to say is true, uh, but it might be hurtful. So I, I think that sometimes those are some of the things that we need to again, pause in that moment, in the, in the moment, um, and, and walk away and, and deal with those things before we say something that, you know, we can't take back. Would you agree with that as kind of one of the pieces that goes into this, uh, as far as how we're looking at these feelings and choices? Yeah, so I think um, there's actually some research from, I think it's the Gottwell Institute um, that actually took a look that they could actually figure out, are these marriages going to make it with, you know, looking at couples and just kind of watching them for 15 minutes, try to deal with an issue. And so uh, the things, the three things I'm going to throw is that when you, when a situation arises like that, we can turn towards somebody, we can turn away from them. Or the third thing is we can just completely ignore them. So by turning towards, which is basically saying, well, um, you know, something positive to the effect, well, I'm not ready to discuss this. Uh, I'd like to just take a little time to think about it. And can we come back to it? So we turn towards them, even was kind of a negative thing towards us. Or just anytime they say, well, that sounds like a great idea, even if we have to turn away or just to move away. But to turn away from them is basically just kind of saying something into the negative sense. Uh, Well, that's kind of a silly idea. 
or why would you want to do that with kind of a negative facial? And then the third way is just to ignore it, just pretend they didn't say anything or we just walk away from it. So the only healthy way is to always turn towards our partner 100% of the time. And even if we don't have the time right there or we're not prepared to do it or we have this negative mindset, we still turn towards um, and actually share, you know, this is I just I just I'm feeling a little negative about this, but I really want to talk about it because I love you. So that turning towards is something we do 100% of the time and research will show that they can actually predict with about 94% accuracy that couples that actually turn towards them in dire times and any other time as well actually tend to um, um, have stronger marriages. Sure. I mean, that's the thought process, I guess, with it. Just to emphasize what you were saying there, even if you're not solving the issue right now, you're still exactly. turning towards them and saying, you know, we we can't fix this problem right now, but I know that we're together, <laughs> basically. Yeah. We're moving forward together in in tackling this problem rather than ignoring them or uh, turning away from them. So both, both partners then would leave in that conversation in kind of a semi-positive mood, but any of the others is going to put a negative attitude in both of the partners, and that's just going to, you know, just... Yeah, those things just tend to grow. Sure. Yep. And the happiness uh, being a feeling or a choice, what are some of the things that we should be thinking about there as far as how we approach uh, our our happiness? So I think happiness is just something that, um, you know, there's a lot of study about, you know, happy people. So they tend to be generous. Okay, so they actually tend to give more than they feel like receiving. Okay, so that's the the world over, just research after research project can share that. So they also tend to have this attitude of gratitude. Okay, so when you take a look at... um, you know, sometimes when people get stressed out, they say, well, you just need to go off uh, and do something for yourself. And I tend to say as a psychologist, that might be one of the worst things you can do. Okay, so um, when people do things with others, do things for others, and even maybe do some things for the planet. Research will show they tend to have some pretty positive responses and doing them things for others actually kind of puts us in a real in a realization that, yeah, maybe our life isn't so bad because this person I'm working for or doing something for has actually got it a lot worse than I do. So it kind of comes in a relative sense, but, um, you know, just doing something outside yourself. And I think one of the larger um, things is, you know, you know, people that live their life with um, a bigger why in life, so we can understand it from the ministry perspective that there's a bigger why in life of this, that, and the other thing. But people that um, aren't part of something larger than themselves tend to have a lot of stress on themselves just because of one reason or another. So, um, yeah, so the people that tend to have a bigger why tend to be more proactive and just have a healthier way to, to will, uh, deal with things. Right. And I, I think it comes down to the fact that we were, we were designed uh, to have you know, to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We were, uh, we were designed with bodies that have minds that have chemicals that work in such a way. And that if we can, uh, know, you know, know some of those things and know the way that those chemicals work and the the things that we can do to release them positively or negatively, uh, then we can, uh, set ourselves up for, for more success in the world. And as I would say, uh, as God designed it and we can, we can enjoy, uh, some of the some of the benefits of living in in this world as as he designed it. Yeah. And to recognize that there are some people with chemical imbalances in whether it be in the brain or the body that definitely need some psychiatric help and things like that, but for the most part I think there's a lot of people that could um overcome a lot of this just with um 
just the way they, they live their life and their ability to smile and their propensity to smile and to laugh, look at the lighter side of life, but realize it's difficult. Yeah. Would you say that the chemical imbalance things are, is there, is it commonly uh, a nature thing or a nurture thing? Like I have basically nurtured these negative thoughts to the point that we've gotten to a chemical imbalance place, or is it, and I'm, I know that the answer is probably going to be yes, <laughs> both and, that yeah. some people are just naturally this way, and then some people, but I think that it's important for us to emphasize the fact that we can probably, I would guess, nurture these uh, negative thoughts and emotions to the point that we get to a place of chemical imbalance, or may, maybe I'm wrong. No, and I'm not going to pretend to be a psychiatrist, but um, I suspect it definitely can happen um, and, and kind of be an and thing. It, it can actually happen both ways, I think, pretty easily. But sometimes these um, um, one little piece I think that we probably should talk about is just how important it is that sometimes these imbalances and just our brain health and things like that is is connected to our diet. So when we take a look at the serotonin, the happiness hormone, everybody thinks that's secreted in the brain. 95% is actually secreted in the gut. Mm. Uh, so the people's stomachs is actually, there's just so many, um, you know, connectors to the brain that it's just unreal how much that stomach actually drives uh, people's um, thought process and they're just their moods of feeling and things like that. So one of the, my favorite studies was a study done back in 1966 where uh, the psychologist counselor type person actually was trying to treat depression and he actually realized that a lot of these people were actually having some very high processed carbohydrate and high sugar diets, you know, for breakfast in the morning in the way of their donuts and uh, this, that, and the other thing. And I suspect it's gotten worse with the sweetened cereals, how sweetened they are. Um, but realizing they get this insulin spike during the day and then they drop and they uh, have this afternoon. And so I started thinking, you know, back in the course of my life, you know, I always had kind of that drop in the afternoon and I started looking back to the sugar intake and the processed carbs. And by gosh, I, you know, if I thought I was suffering from anxiety or sometimes just full out uh, depression some afternoons, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, if I just took that stuff out of my diet, which I did, and they actually bring in the fat and the protein back into the diet. And I'm not a nutritionist either, but this is just kind of a demonstration that it sure uh, worked for me quite well. When I can get those things out of my diet, I'm a lot more relaxed and um, and things like that. And so I just kind of put that nutrition out there as something that's, I think, extremely important. And a lot of people don't realize that every four grams of sugar is pretty much a teaspoon. So I was working with somebody last week that I started calculating up. I said, you, you know, you're putting over 100 teaspoons of sugar in your body every day. I mean, your body, how does your body try to handle something like that? And then they start getting a little bit overweight and um, then that leads to a few more problems and, you know, just kind of, so I'm not saying that's the um, the main cause of a lot of this, but it definitely um, could be a pretty serious cause for some people. And the other thing I would kind of mention is just like smartphone use. Um, you know, our brains are not um, wired to get a dopamine release every eight minutes, you know, from the back in the, the whole of history, you might get a dopamine release once or twice a day. And here we're probably getting about eight minutes every eight minutes if you get a like or something that um, goes positive on your phone, but you could also get some cortisol if say you get a dislike or somebody says a nasty comment to you. So you got all these brain brain releases happening in your brain. And just with a smartphone use, the whole concept, you know, yeah, I can bring us closer together. But it can also uh, cause us to the, and kind of 
envy and depression are definitely two factors that have been very well researched about excessive smartphone use. And so at that time when I was getting out, getting rid of my sugar detox and my processed carb detox, I also went through a smartphone detox and got rid of the news and got rid of Facebook and a few things like that. And boy, just the whole thought process, yeah, it was a tough the first three hours, the first five hours, not grabbing the phone all the time, but just simple things like that that people don't think of that um, can really cause some um, issues with stress and anxiety and depression. Yeah, this is, I mean, we live in a really unique time in human history. And I mean, like unique as in the last 30 years of human history that we've been able to know about, uh, we've been, been able to know instantaneously about a mugging in Australia and an earthquake in Turkey and the list goes on and on and on about things that we can know instantaneously about. And I just don't think we're equipped uh, as human beings to handle that much bad news coming at us all the time. And the news organizations have a profit motive (laughs) for sharing bad news because the engagement on it is higher, you know? And so it, it just is a really something that we've got to be really careful about, I think. And uh, not to mention all the other sides of social media. And the, and like you said, the, the way that that can uh, affect us with likes and dislikes and negative comments and positive comments and, and just the, the onslaught every eight minutes, you know? So I think that those are some things that just really be cautious about those things in, in the way that we interact with them. And one of the other things I guess I would say is just, you know, people always put these to-do lists together. Research is starting to show you know, people that kind of use diaries and make together a, like a to-be list of, you know, who do I want to be or what do I want to be in the next three to five years, the next 15 years? Um, you know, at, at my age, by the time I die, you know, how do I want people to remember me and just kind of relive their life in kind of a, a written fashion of what they think it should be. And they tend to be more successful getting to where they think they want to be. So you're saying positively a to-do list and a to-be list are both important tools. Yeah. So the one keeps us organized and the the other one keeps us focused uh, Mm. on our long-term goals. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I don't know if it's unique necessarily to the ranching for profit world, but they would talk about the, the mission and the vision. uh, That the mission is, is uh, the big picture. This is where we're going as a whole. And then the vision is, this is the day-to-day how we are going to get to the to the mission, basically. And so I think that that's kind of the same thing. The to-do list is the day-to-day that's going to lead us to the to-be list, basically. Yeah. And when we talk, um, you know, farmers are extremely busy all the time, and this kind of gets to be a parenting skill too. But um, and with the smartphone and just with everything that's being thrown at us with the, the media is that people just don't have enough time to be bored. So in that boredom actually creates your creativity. And I think it's especially um, important for those as you're, you know, raising kids is that kids nowadays just do not get enough time to be bored. So they always, always have something either in their ear that they're listening to, or they're on their smartphones or whatever. They just don't get that time to sit Mm. there and try to be creative about what they're going to play with, what they're going to do next. And just to sit and process what life's all about. (laughs) That's yeah, that's really good. Creativity where, you know, we, it it stunts creativity if you yeah. always have intake and man that's a that's a good one that i think is yeah, another word i powerful. mean we talk about a lot of different words like forgiveness and creativity but another one is just the, the word hope is that if you're working with a farmer especially i mean just every time i work with that i just always leave them with a sense of hope and there's this research project done back in the 60s as well um just uh, three groups of mice and so the first group of mice um every time they heard the bell whether they touched uh, the pedal or not they never got a shock 
the second group of mice, every time they heard the bell, they could touch a pedal and 80% of the time they would still get the shock and 20% of the time they would not. And the third group of mice, every time they heard the bell, 100% of the time they get the shock. So the third group did not live very long. Okay, they didn't fare very well at all. But the important thing is that the second group that still got the shock 80% of the time didn't fare that much different than the first group, the control group. And so even if you, they only have 20% hope, I just think that's a, a nice little project that gives us the thought process that leave them some hope because those people that just still have at least some hope left uh, tend to try to figure things out and be more resilient than when people have lost all their hope. Okay, and that's just, it's just a very difficult thing for people to move on when they've lost all hope. Yeah, so what are some of the ways that we can kind of maintain hope in those scenarios? So if they really get bad, I mean, just I've always, um, you know, I've had people that have gone through bankruptcies. I've worked with some farmers that pretty much had peanut butter and bread on the table, and they've had that for the last week with water, um, just trying to live. And it's a very meager, but just the whole thought process about, you know, what life uh, can be even after they lose the farm. Okay, so I've had some farmers that were actually very thankful that we helped them kind of um, move on from the farm and move on to a different lifestyle mm -hmm. because they kind of appreciated over, it over time. And so I think there's always some kind of a sense of uh, something that's afterwards. So even after the, all that grief, say we lose somebody in a car accident in the community or whatever, um, just, you know, when they get to the point where they can kind of accept that and move on, you know, just how do you help them vision forward? And this might come back from the, uh, the thought process about what do you want to be in three years or five five years, or how can we overcome that? It all kind of runs together, but just that sense of hope is so extremely important. Um, and I think a lot of times people have a hard time just like remembering things when they're under a lot of stress and trying to give themselves hope is hard for them to do that themselves. And so I think that's where, you know, the helpers that are out there in agribusiness, they're out there in the churches that can actually be those people to actually give hope. And I also, um, and maybe you don't know this, but I spend a lot of my time actually working in the, in the grief ministry and just working with uh, whether it be farmers or just people that have lost something. And one of the things I always realize is that, you know, grief is kind of unique. It works in their own time. Um, when people take a look at it, um, you know, being unique, we got to let it take time. It's not something we just want them to, to get over uh, with. And um, so, uh, just a, a case and example sometimes you know people you know don't want to talk about it so anytime something happens in a community you know anybody and everybody's there the first two or three weeks but who's going to be that person in the community that's going to be there three months down the road and six months down the road it always it doesn't always have to be a, men, a minister or a counselor because sometimes they're best off helped by somebody that's a family member a friend or somebody in that community that they look up to and i so i think that's kind of a, a thought is that um, these people need people to talk to the world moves on you know after a couple Couple weeks and they're still kind of stuck in their grief people try to push them through and say well aren't you over that yet and like i said at the beginning i'm hoping you never get over it but i am here to help you try to process through this in a very healthy way um, that you can um, at least deal with this grief in a healthy way over time so yeah. i think there's just a lot of things whether it be hope and grief and creativity and just the discipline that people have the word forgiveness and how they um you know, just have the realization of the reality of what life is all about, not letting our things, our negative things define us in a negative way. So I think there's just a whole host of things like that, in addition to the communication and the breathing, smiling techniques that we can work with. But I think nutrition, again, is always an important one and just being part of something that's bigger than ourselves as well. Yeah, yeah, a lot there for sure. You know, I think that that, that piece you just mentioned about uh, circling back around 
months and years later uh, is an important one. And uh, I think that, you know, there might be 400 people there on the day of the funeral, but how many people are still checking in, uh, you know, two months out, three months out, six months out, kind of those things and, and the importance of, of keeping those things in mind as far as the important, you know, there's the birthday, there's the the first Christmas, first Thanksgiving, yep. first, you know, all these firsts that we have to experience without those people. And that's all part of the grieving process. And, and I think that we can help people uh, through that grieving process by showing up uh, on some of those firsts and on, on some of those just days on a Tuesday, <laughs> three months later, when, when yep. they haven't heard from anybody in a week or whatever. So. I think my challenge in that, if you think got a few more minutes, just the whole yeah. thought of that, um, we always have this uh, two-question approach to people like that. And so I always try to mention that person's name and how and asking how the family's doing, um, you know, with the loss of um, whether it be a, a daughter or something like that. And um, it's always amazing that the first time you say it, they're kind of shocked and they might not even say anything or try to change the subject. Then you bring it back a second time is usually when I get the take on it. If they don't... Um, you know, bite off the second one um, piece of bait, then I just kind of move on to the weather or something like that. But it's always amazing how sometimes it takes that second one. And one person said, you know, the important piece of this is that um, um, I need to talk about this and nobody ever wants to talk about it. And in fact, they won't even mention her by name. You know, it's like mm. she never existed in the first place. And so there's some very deep feelings that sometimes come out. Uh, but sometimes, like I said, you have to ask that second time to to to, to get them to talk about it. Sure. Something else that we passed over pretty quickly that I think uh, needs to have attention called to it. And I, I just recently spoke to some FFA students, uh, released the episode of that a few weeks ago now, by the time this comes out. But it was something that I heard Jared Knox say, and Jared's one of the hosts at Roots and Ruminants, works for Millborn Seeds. And uh, he said one time in a talk that he gave, he put up a picture of a barn and he said, this is the farm. And then he put up his family's picture and he said, this is the legacy. And the difference between the farm and the legacy or the difference between the ranch and the legacy and the fact that we can lose the, we can lose the ranch or we can lose the farm. We can go bankrupt and still not lose our legacy and just kind of, you know, what's important. Is Mm -hmm. it the, is it the physical dirt and the buildings and, and the memories attached to them or is it the people and that those memories were made with that we actually want to make sure that we're uh, clinging to and recognizing you know, if we've lost the, the, the ranch, we haven't really lost the legacy. So, yeah, it's a definitely important piece. I think when you take a look at just the emotional ties that people have to their land, especially our, our kind of our, we've got a lot of German type farmers around here that just really have a lot of emotional ties compared to like someone, your English uh, type farmers researcher. So they might not have quite the, um, the emotional ties. It's more of a business to them versus um, what we might look at it here. And anytime that we lose something like that, there's a separation anxiety. And there are there is a lot of attachments, and so that whole piece that's in the middle between that that attachment is what we need to kind of work with because that's where our feelings and our thought processes um, is trying to attach those two things together. So sometimes, yeah, we need to detach them. Yeah, as we point to wrapping up here, one thing I've had on my list as I've been taking notes while you've been talking uh, is to talk to circle back around to this idea of sympathy versus empathy. And could you talk to me a little bit more about the difference and how you're defining those two terms? Okay, so sympathy sympathy is basically that, um, you know, something happens and we just, um, 
Um, there's not a good another good word for sympathy, but you just we feel very sorry for them. Um, so it's kind of like we're here and now they're there, and we just um, kind of actually kind of feeling down for them. Okay, so and the more we feel down for people, the more they're going to start looking at. Um, you know, kind of feeling down for themselves and actually uh, feeling sorry for themselves the rest of their life. So this actually happens in the parenting phase actually quite a bit because um, there's a lot of, um, you know, and I, sometimes I call them new age parents or whatever that never want their kids to feel bad. So we always sympathize with their feelings and we kind of uh, play it down that you, know, you shouldn't have to feel this way. You shouldn't have to feel this way uh, when they should be feeling up up here. So that sympathy is not a positive thing. But, you know, going through a wake and a funeral and a few days after that. Yeah, we need to sympathize with people just because of what they just went through. But the concept of empathy is more of the thought process of how we can kind of uh, work the thoughts and the feelings uh, together. And we can empathize how you're uh, feeling about this, but is there a way that I can actually help you, um, um, you know, think through this process to help you move on beyond it? Okay, and that's where we need to really uh, work with people because that's the healthy thing. When people can really empathize with people, they can really make each other stronger and they can bond a lot closer together and relationships can grow. But when they sympathize, it's kind of actually taking that um, relationship kind of down that, um, you know, I'm better than you and you've had this experience happen to you. So it's kind of a negative thing that kind of uh, works with it. So the empathy is definitely the, the stronger thing and it um, just helps people uh, kind of, you know, try to get through that grief process and actually get to a higher level of reasoning and higher level of being, I think. So let me take a stab at uh, redefining what you're saying. Uh, sympathy, it sounds to me, is kind of like pity without actions, <laughs> that I just, I, oh. I feel bad for you, but I'm not doing anything about it. And then empathy is more like compassion, which literally the two words that make up the word compassion means to suffer with, that I enter yep. into your suffering. And then, you know, Jesus said, uh, take my yoke upon you, my burden is light, you know, um, and so basically he's the one carrying that yoke with us, and we enter into that the other person's suffering, and we try to help them carry that load uh, so that they're not bearing it by themselves. Is that kind of in the ballpark of what you're talking about? I think that's a very well, very good way to define it. Very good. Very well said. I appreciate that. Yeah, so... Uh, very good. Uh, we covered a lot of ground here today, and but I, I think uh, if, I, if I could just give you an opportunity to kind of uh, put a bow on it and maybe maybe direct people some, towards some resources, if you just kind of help tie these things together and then direct people to, to some resources. Yeah, so I'd, like I probably should have said at the beginning, so I spent about 50% 50 of my time actually working in farm mental health. And I think there's a lot of things just in the last three to five years that we've picked up and we've actually created quite a few of our resources with that. So we deal a lot with, um, you know, when when you're married to farm stress. And so there's a lot of um, issues that happen just within marriages that are related to the farm, but they're kind of so intertwined that there's a big thing then. And it has to do a lot with uh, personalities as well. And so that personality is a piece that's kind of a whole other session sometimes if you want to try to uh, work through that. But the, the differences of, of grief of, with men, men, women, and children is actually a webinar um, on each one of these uh, separate ones that's actually on the website that they can actually go back and, and look at. on our. So if you just Google ISU Dairy Team or ISU Extension Dairy Team or Google my name, I suspect you'll be able to find this website pretty simply. Um, so when we take a look at um, one thing I kind of want to mention that probably should have got mentioned during it is that, you know, a lot of the research has been over 90 percent of the research has been done on the stress of farm men. 
And research will actually show that women experience more farm stress than men do, uh, probably because they're carrying their their husband's uh, farm stress. They're still multitasking, dealing with the kids, sometimes an off-farm job, um, in addition to all the stresses that are happening, actually sometimes being a person on the farm is there as well. And then plus the female body tends to only have about 80% of the energy capacity that the male body does uh, for various reasons. Um, and so there's a lot of whole things with, with women in stress that it's pretty important as well. And then when we take a look at the stresses of children that um, are part of that farm, there's a whole section on there just of how do we try to deal with the farm stress? Because the thing about kids is that they will um, um, kind of internalize it and they'll also magnify it. So they'll think of, well, that's because of what I did. So it's my fault. But um, the simple little conflict that mom and dad might be having, they're going to magnify that and say, well, they're getting a divorce. Okay, and what what were the actions that I did that actually caused this? And so there's a lot of different uh, thought processes that kids um, uh, tend to have with it as well. And so I just think there's a lot of um, resources like that. So there's probably about 11 different publications. There's four different webinars on that website. So if we just kind of click the um, ISU website, and um, once you get to the Dairy Team website, there's a link called Farm Stress Resources. And under that is kind of a whole host of um, things that I can't remember, even all the things that we did uh, with it. But there's definitely a lot of publications and stuff there. So, And a lot of our YouTube videos and podcasts are there as well. That's kind of similar to what we just did here. Great. Yeah. Well, I'll track that down and we'll throw it in the show notes page for today. Uh, Larry, thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Very good stuff there with Larry. Really appreciate his uh, time today. Really appreciate his perspective and some of the things that he uh, has learned over many years of dealing with uh, quite a number of people on these issues. Looking forward to next week on the Working Cows podcast. We will be talking to Dr. Ken Olson and Jalen Whaley. Both of them are with the South Dakota uh, Extension Service. Uh, We're going to focus on the role of small ruminants in dealing with brush in the Western United States. And uh, just on a recent trip to, uh, well, not so recent now, about six months ago, I went elk hunting in uh, in Colorado and I got to see kind of some of the mountain west and the amount of brush that exists in that part of the world. And I just thought this place, this, uh, this country needs a couple hundred thousand goats, it looks like. And uh, talked to Dr. Ken Olson, who's got a lot of experience in that way, and Jalen Whaley, who is coming in to the extension service and being mentored by uh, Dr. Ken and some others. She is the extension sheep specialist for uh, South Dakota. We're going to talk to them about what are the uh, what is the role of small ruminants on these uh, brushy uh, mountain west regions and in other parts of the world as well. Dr. Olson has a wide uh, range of experience. So looking forward to that conversation coming your way real soon on another episode of the Working Cows podcast. We'll see you then. We invite you to visit workingcows.net to subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher. You'll also find detailed show notes pages, resources from our guests, and the industry leaders who have influenced them. For more ideas on putting your cows to work for you in a more profitable way, tune in next week.